celebrating our past, embracing our future. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of CFAL Talks. I am Pamela Ferguson, Vice President of Investments at CFAL. CFAL is marking its 25th anniversary under the theme, Celebrating Our Past, Embracing Our Future. To commemorate this period of growth and progress, we are having a series of interviews with CFAL's founding principals and founding chairman. Today, we are having a conversation with Kenwood Kerr, one of the founding principals of CFAL. Kenwood Kerr has an impressive resume, which includes his current positions as founder, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer of Providence Advisors Limited, a wholly owned bohemian company. He was also the first bohemian to hold the position of manager of investment services at Coots Bahamas Limited. Mr. Kerr's career in finance has spanned more than 35 years and includes capital markets, wealth management, securities trading, and contributions to legislation and policies affecting the investment sector and national economic issues. Mr. Kerr was also a financial news writer for the Bahamas Journal in 1993, the Nassau Guardian from 1997 to 2000, and the Tribune in 2000. Kenwood Kerr's passion to serve has afforded him the opportunity to serve on various boards, including New Providence Ecology Park, better known as the Landfill, Deputy Chairman of Bahamas Air from 2000 to 2012, and the Bahamas International Stock Exchange, or BISIX, from 2003 to 2008. Kenwood currently serves on the board of Providence Advisors Limited and Bahamas First Group Holdings. Kenwood Kerr began his career at CFAL in 1999 and has contributed significantly to the development and establishment of CFAL during those formative years. Welcome, Kenwood Kerr. It's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you. So let's just get started. The year CFAL was started, gas price was around $1.99 per gallon. Equity trades were done via the over-the-counter market and BISICs didn't even exist. Tell us, Ken, what else about the economy or the capital market in the Bahamas do you remember during CFAL's first year in business? Well, this is a kind of a memory lane experience for you this morning, taking me back a few decades. But 97 was really the the conceptual time of CFAL. Tony Ferguson worked across the street in Norfolk House, and I had worked across the street in Fidelity House, having launched a company called Royal Fidelity uh, that I'd taken public in 1995. So we had just, in 94, being good friends, wrote a paper to restructure NIB to create uh, foreign exchange savings for NIB, which in and of itself was a way for us to launch our own firm. Mm-hmm. But we were told that we could cut our teeth on this paper, which we did, and we were told that the government would turn us down, which they did. <laughs> so we were then assigned to the Securities Market Task Force, which we completed our works in 95, 96, which led to the formation of structured capital markets. Structured capital markets in terms of creating a Securities uh, Industry Act, Mm -hmm. Securities Commission of the Bahamas, 
and formalizing trades over BISX. So in those early days, Tony would come across the street and say, he referred to me as car. He always called me car. Mm -hmm. Say, boy, car, you know, we should, we should do this and we should do that. We should form something. So around 98, 97, everything started to come together in a formal kind of way because CFAL really has its origins out of Killeen Insurance. Mm -hmm. and, and that's another story in itself that he could tell. But we got together finally um, when he convinced me, say, listen, uh, we could do this. We could form an all Bahamian team to do uh, investment management, capital market work, et cetera, in the Bahamas. And, and that is what we did. Concurrently, 97 was the second time of uh, Hubert Ingram's government, which is relaunching the Bahamas in terms of its uh, um, political stability, um, economic stability. The Kersners had just uh, finished phase one of Atlantis, so tourism was booming. There were a lot of things going on in 97 uh, that caused us to be positive and have a positive outlook not only on energy, but the Bahamas as a whole. So it was a good time. Hutchison Wampaw was making significant investments in Grand Bahama. And of course, then uh, BISX trading was over the counter. Mm -hmm. And by then we bought whole based on our own outlooks. We made the spread and it was a great time. A you great mentioned time. that it was during the time of Mr. Um, Ingram. Did that help in confidence um, building for you to just jump out there and decided that you can do this, you can start your own investment company? Because during that time, investments was really like a white man's profession. Black well, men didn't usually get involved in investments. Now you're getting into some sensitive areas, right? If you look at what we did, it's perhaps more useful to look at who we are as individuals first. And then you could, you could connect the dots and say, well, I could see why they did this. We have similarities that uh, we'll probably get into later, but we were bold, young, tenacious. We believe we knew everything that needed to be known, and we figured we read the same books as the as the foreigners or the non-Bahamians or, or the whites, and we understood what the theories were and the application of those uh, theories, the academics, as well or better than than most. And so our objective always was to show that we could do it. Indirectly, we were, we were breaking these glass ceilings or removing these glass ceilings to begin with. So mm -hmm. the political stability helped, I guess, as, a, as an underpinning for, for, for the market and what we're trying to do. We were trying to push the development of the thought process that capital markets can work in the Bahamas. And so... Politics may have played a role, but it wasn't the central role. We just thought we could do this as well as anybody else because our premise was we worked in these big firms. We were doing it for them. Why mm -hmm. can't we do it for ourselves? That's great. So you have a keen interest in pension management and pension education, and you actually served on the 2012 tax Task Force for Pension Legislation. How has the pension sector evolved over the past 25 years? Well... <laughs> In the old days, uh, 20 years ago, everybody's pension for the most part was a, what we call a defined uh, benefit plan. 
And as you know, uh, in accounting, they create a lot of variability on the balance sheet when you have these DB plans because you have these unfunded liabilities that are created for whatever reasons. Most of it is investment uh, shortfalls or lack of performance or the benefits uh, to these employees are just outweighing and not keeping pace with the contribution levels of the companies. So there was a desire, well, there was a desire to move away from these legacy defined benefits, which uh, maybe one or two of them still exists, like um, water and sewage, maybe in BEC, BPL, to what we call defined contribution plans, where you share some of the risks of the pension with the employees, meaning I'll contribute uh, X percent of salary towards you if you contribute X amount of your salary towards your own retirement. And so that's where the evolution has been. In 2012, they tried to formalize this so that pensions become mandatory. You had to look at it in the context of a three-legged stool, so to speak. Individual savings, what I can do for myself, what the national schemes can provide in retirement through NIB or some social infrastructure, and thirdly, what companies can provide to employees. So in this context, we knew that the Bahamas traditionally, and even today, uh, savings rates, investment rates were really, really low, and the habits are bad because we're so consumption-based, but that's, a, that's a, another road to go down as well. So you needed to have some kind of safety net other than NIB, because if you didn't have uh, good savings and you didn't have a corporate retirement plan, then all of the responsibility of retirement rests on the state. And our view in 94 was to, in writing that NIB restructuring paper, was to build enough reserves so that we could build up NIB, so that NIB could be in a position to service these future demands for retirement. So everything had a connection when we look back at it. Um, so in 12, we went through the machinations of writing a report that would mirror the Ontario legislation. Uh, Bermuda and Jamaica had um, really good legislation, and we thought we would, would do some of that. That work didn't come to a head until 2014, and it just died. And then suddenly in January 2015, we had VAT, which is another discussion. The principal pushback, though, from the private sector was that mandatory pensions would ostensibly be a tax mm. on business, mm -hmm. right? And and there was some pushback by one of my good friends, Rick Lowe in particular, who was an advocate for free markets and choice. Um, he's probably going to be upset with me, but <laughs> he comes to mind immediately as one of those persons opposing the mandatory nature of it. But that is still something that has to happen because a lot of people fall outside of the the the, the corporate uh, realm, the individuals who are sole proprietorships or self-employed, and then you have the persons who just don't save enough, who don't have that discipline. Right. So you need some kind of uh, structured pension legislation to capture as much of those people as possible and take some of that burden off the NIB. So, so right now it's a, it's a hard sell to each company as you go along to to encourage them to do a pension. Mm -hmm. So what would you say then to government 
to encourage them to proceed with pension legislation because to date we still don't have, 25 years later, we still don't have pension legislation? Well, the unfortunate reality is, and you've seen it in the press, and this is a fairly dated report, KPMG would have said, well, let me back up a bit. If we look at the public sector, um, which is the government employees principally, those persons have a pension pay-as-you-go, uh, and that unfunded liability there is a number that exceeds $2.4 billion mm -hmm. pension yeah. liability, of which none of the persons in the public sector contribute uh, towards. Mm -hmm. It's important for government, as we manage the whole fiscal affairs of government in the country, to try and alleviate some of this burden, pay down some of that previous debt, and alleviate the ongoing burden by having a shared responsibility. And I think pension legislation in some form could assist them with that, because if you don't, that burden is going to exist for all of us to share, and it's going to manifest itself on the demands of NIB. So I think this government, this current government, with a clean slate, relatively speaking, can cause the gradual implementation of some kind of Define contribution type plans for the public sector, particularly for new employees mm -hmm. uh, that are coming on the bank on the government's uh, payrolls. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important. Otherwise, we're going to have this in another five, 10, 15 years, be debating the same issues. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, can they say that timing is integral to every successful company? And in my opinion, you, along with the other two founding principals, Larry Gibson and Anthony Ferguson, you got it right in terms of timing. So what made you decide to join forces with Anthony Ferguson and Larry Gibson to start CFAL? Well, Tony is my friend. We, we, mm -hmm. we have a relationship that exceeds 40 years. Um, I met him at COB. He came from Crooked Island. He boasts of Crooked Island. I boast of Cat Island. Uh, we were in the business division. He came a little earlier than me. By the time I joined COB, he was almost leaving. Then we ended up at uh, Acadia University in the same business division. When I came, we overlapped for a while, and he was leaving, and then I was there. I came back uh, one summer, and he was in the investment department. And we had a kinship, a kindred spirit, a kinship that we worked well together, almost like a yin and yang. Mm -hmm. Good cop, bad cop, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, so we, always, we had so much common history. Island fellas, family structure, over the hill, ambitious, fearless, just young Turks. And I don't know if you know a Crooked Island man or a Cat Island man. They they know everything put together. Everything. 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 So <laughs> we, we wanted to break the mold when we started at a company called Roy West, which is the building where the prime minister's office, office of the prime minister is in. And that business then was the exclusive domain of either the social elite, the political elite, or the foreigners. Mm -hmm. And here we were, two young fellas, a Ferguson and a Kerr, and nobody ever heard of a car. So we were strangers <laughs> yeah. in this, uh, this offshore world. So that decision to join forces um, was easy. Um, we trusted each other, uh, you know, and we, we wanted to do something that was um, 100% behemoth. So 
it was sort of like a leap of faith if you look at it from one angle. It was part bravado and part calculated if you look at it in hindsight. So what people thought was spontaneous, um, we we could see a little further than the normal person. So that decision to join was was easy, but it was necessary in the end to for for socio social reasons to show it, it can be done. The reason we have so much behemoths in financial services or private uh, this asset management is because they needed to see somebody look like them coming from the places they came from doing the things that they need to be doing. And if you don't have that role model. So for me, it was T.B. Donaldson. T.B. Donaldson was this pillar of this, this person that represented that you could do it. He come from Eastland Street, mm-hmm. other places. So we needed to show that young Bahamians could do it. So it was, you know, we, we, we had to build that proverbial bridge for those coming behind us. Not for us, but for those coming behind us so that they could have a easier uh, walk, you know? Yeah, and I, I do believe that a, a lot of young people look at you, Anthony and Larry Gibson, um, as role models. I mean, you may they may not say it out or you may not hear it, but I think many persons look up to you um, from a distance as role models for them. They say that successful companies are born out of the idea or desire to solve a problem. What problem were you and the principal attempting to solve with starting CFAL? Well, well, first I have to give it to you in the context of Fidelity, because Fidelity was trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And what what I had was uh, a high degree of systemic intelligence or resource skill sets working in the domestic space. I had international experience as well, but I had command of the domestic space. And at that time, the market for financial services was evolving where we had a unbelievable amounts of uh, regulation, which was causing a contraction in the offshore. And the focus became the domestic market. And so what we did is we brought all these things uh, together. So we would build a unique shop that had both skill sets in abundance. And so the capital markets then needed to be ignited. They needed to be the education, which we did through the schools. It needed to be the active trading between buyers and sellers. And so we were setting ourselves up as the ultimate intermediary. And that's really what we are Mm -hmm. in our basic form. Taking monies or excess funds from those who who save it to those who need to borrow it. And that's how we we build the activity. And that is was just just that. Yep. Being the first uh, pure, as indigenous as you get, behaviors who, who are doing that. And that's what we fill the void with. So on the individual level, the buying and selling. On the capital market side, assisting companies to go public or raise capital. This had not been done uh, with that kind of laser-like focus before. You either went to a bank or you went privately to your friends or you... In the old days, Roy West would, would raise some money for you like they did in uh, supermarkets in 69, J.S. Johnson 83, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we figured we could fill that void in the market for the retail client, the institutional client. And yes. that's what we did. That's great. So what would you say 
has been the most rewarding part of your leadership role at CFAL? Well, we 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 were so confident ourselves. We we were able to get a lot of other young, educated Bahamians to just follow us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I think we build a cadre of experienced professionals who are equally as qualified or more qualified, exposed, equally as fearless and competent. Um, we, I, I was I was given the responsibility for new business development, so I was more or less a rainmaker, go out and find the business, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. So that was very rewarding, and I think the reward was not necessarily financial to have people come up and say, boy, you guys are doing a great job. We admire yeah. what you, we used to call us the three amigos, I think. <laughs> Larry, Curly, and Mo, I think. That's that's what they call the amigos, three amigos. Or three stooges, whatever it is. So that's what was rewarding to, to actually see Bahamians recognizing what we were doing, not only as a business, but as shaping an industry and shaping a, a perspective on what young Bahamians can do. Before that would be the Sunshine Boys would be a parallel, I guess, but they were more private exercise. We were in the public space, right. um, making noise and shaking the trees, you know. You know so we that have was a, quite, quite rewarding for me. Yeah, we have a, one of our investment managers, Lachelle White, and she had said that um, one time the group from CFAL, including yourself and Anthony Ferguson, um, came to her school and did a presentation. No, it was a public school and did a presentation. And she said that inspired her um, to really wanted to pursue um, a career in investments. So like I said, you guys are having an impact, (laughs) whether you realize it or not, you are having an impact um, on, on younger Bahamians. And I think that's an awesome that's an awesome thing. So what advice would you give to someone considering um, starting a business partnership similar to what you and Anthony Ferguson and Larry Gibson um, um, did? Well, maybe I need to <clears throat> preempt my comments by saying, generally speaking, lots of behemoths have ideas and want to get into business. Um, but being entrepreneurial or working for yourself um, is more than just making the decisions and collecting all the money. You you have to have some desire and drive. Um, I still get to work seven o'clock, and me and Tony used to race to see who gets to work earlier. Sometimes I have to be at six thirty to beat it. So, with that said, you you have to have um, going into a partnership. Or business, you you have to have a really good understanding of the business that you are getting into. Uh, that space, what are the regulatory requirements, the hurdles, the 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 tax, and whatever it is, the employment issues, right? You, you you have to understand the space. If it's a partnership, the single biggest thing is is trust. Uh, you have to trust the next person uh, because. They are going to be in bed with you working for the duration of this partnership, and you have to rely on each other. Um, you got to know what each partner brings to the table. I mean, everybody in our grouping was good, but you know, I had a certain set of skill sets. 
Tony had a certain set of skill sets and Larry had a certain set of skill set. Any one of us singularly could hold our own in a space, but together we were, you know, formidable is the word. Yeah, and working with, with the three of you, I experienced that. You were yeah. distinctly different um, in your personality and how you approach stuff. So I had firsthand experience with that. So, so, so Larry is very patient and deliberate. <laughs> I was more the communicator and Tony was the bad guy. Yeah. He needed somebody to chop something up. He, he may he disagree with that. Huh? He may disagree with that. Yeah. But he so got I right to the point. Know, but when, when it was useful for us, we could switch roles and it was instinctive. Yeah. But we, you, you always have to have trust. You have to have that desire and will to succeed because I'll tell you, while we were doing that, not everybody liked what we were doing. I I'm because aware they could of that. See, mm -hmm. They could see the transition coming. They could see that wave of change coming and they just couldn't stop it. Mm -hmm. and so not everybody agreed or embraced what we were trying to do. So you're going to always have detractors, but that trust element is a critical thing with your partnership. Anybody doing any partnerships uh, these days or whenever you need to, to have trust and understanding of the partner, of who, you, who you're bringing to the table, you know, because it's these things uh, don't always work out and sometimes the experiences are very difficult. Yeah. So, Ken, tell us what you are doing now and how have you continued your legacy in the financial services industry? Well, I, for me now, it's, um, you know, I, after CFILE, I went back to SG Hambros. For me, it's, it's more, I think, going back to where when I started, taking the path less traveled, so to speak, Robert Frost. Okay. And you only could look at that when you look, think of it, connecting the dots, looking backward. So I, uh, after my stint at CFAL, I went to SG Hambros. That took a few years um, at another senior level. Then as fate would have it, they wanted to exit. And I, I said, I'll do it. I'll take that business. I called my good friend Ferguson. He said, listen, if you need the funding, we'll back you. This is in a 48 hour period. Mm -hmm. uh, so happened that we didn't need the funding uh, to the degree that we thought, but we were back together again uh, to, to, to control the domestic or the financial space. And so after that, SG Hambros, and then 16 years now, we've been doing uh, Providence Advisors. Mm -hmm. Some folks then gave us uh, three months. Others were more generous, six months. And now we've done 16 years. That's awesome. But, um, we formed a, a joint venture company with the two larger clients, which we still cater to, but these days is is more of a boutique why we do the traditional services of pension administration, asset management, and corporate advisory. We are more now into a diversified investment holdings mm -hmm. company looking to add value to the shareholder base, which are the pensioners who who sit behind us in those two large trusts. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I'm I'm more an observer of, of the political landscape and the financial landscape. I am trying to force myself to become more adept of this, uh, this new um, digital currency space, because mm -hmm. that seems to be evolving. That seems to be the next frontier. So yeah. I'm, uh, I'm sprinting to get myself to a level where I could fully uh, understand, understand and perhaps participate in it, but mostly uh, I'm an observer now. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think we've we've built the bridge for others to cross. Um, nothing else to prove. Okay. So, what do you think will be your legacy, Ken? Um, I don't know. I I haven't set out to 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 build a legacy. I guess, but I think the singular well. The singular point I could fall back on is that everybody who has been exposed to me in a working environment, I always considered myself a, a teacher, dating back to the Roy West years, NatWest, Coots, Seafile, sharing what I know because you know that's that's probably a bridge builder. I, if you if you had a better word, I don't know. I think that could be close to it. I want to thank you because I learned a lot from you, working with you, being green and going into the field and not knowing much of anything, but just sitting down and listening to you, listening to you, listening to Anthony Ferguson, listening to Larry Gibson and um, helping to shape who I am today. So I just want to thank you for for your expertise and, and, and thank you for being open that, you know, young person could find that refuge um, in you and learn a whole lot. We have come to the end of another C-File Talks episode. Thank you so much for contributing to this special anniversary episode. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please send us a note at info at cfile.com or visit our website at www.cfile.com and show your support. Thank you to C-File for sponsoring this episode. Until next time. 